You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. Today is going to be a very special show because it's a lead-up to Disability, International Disability Day on the 3rd of December and we'll be hearing an announcement about that later. But in the meantime, first up on the show, we're going to be interviewing Marie Yunan and she's written a fabulous book and it's entitled, it's entitled A Different Kind of Scene, My Journey. And it's Marie Union with Jill Sanganetti. And Marie Union, Union is an interpreter with refugees and counsellors at Foundation House, the Victorian Foundation for Survivors of Torture in Melbourne. And Jill Sanganetti is a retired lecturer and researcher in education and her childhood memoir, School Days of a Methodist Lady, A Journey Through Girlhood, was published by Wild Dingo Press in 2014. And indeed, Marie's book has been published by Scribe Publishing, and we'll give you the website for that later. And I'm sure that Marie will speak for herself, and she'll be giving us a wonderful account, I believe, of her story. But I wanted to just tell listeners just a little bit about Marie before we begin, and that is that Marie was actually born in Syria, and she's an interpreter with refugees, as I said before. And she's also vision impaired. And she believes also very strongly in Braille literacy and learnt Braille later on in life and came to Australia. And she's had, she's had a very, very interesting childhood. And I, I'm really happy and honoured to be welcoming her to the show so that she can talk about her childhood, talk a little bit about perhaps how she went blind or vision impaired. Um, I suppose we've got to get with the correct terminology these days, don't we? But I think you, I think you listeners know what I mean. And and to discuss also a little bit about her life in Syria and and talk about how she came to Australia and how she learned all those life skills and learned English and Braille at the same time. I spoke to her off air this afternoon and I love her. Even though I've never met her yet. And the book um, made me laugh and it also reduced me to 
You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And you're back with the Doing Time Show. Sorry about that, listeners. Not sure what happened there. I think we had some technical difficulties. But we've got Marie coming on very soon. And as I said, we will be speaking with her very shortly um, about her book. Hello, Marie. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah, Marie, just a quick, a quick question before we start. Now, we did have some technical difficulties. I'm just wondering, did you, when you were on hold, did you hear me introduce your book? You did. You did very clear until the last um, few words, then I lost your voice. Okay, you okay. Yes. Excellent. So, so you, you heard all the bio, you heard all that stuff? Yes, yes. You are a legend. Okay, Marie, so I'm wondering, could you just start off by talking about your book and what made you, what made you write it? And just tell us about yourself and, and where you were born and what happened. Well, first of all, I when I start reading and writing Braille, I wanted to put my whole life story together so other people, maybe blind people or even sighted people can read it and or especially sighted people can believe that people with disability are like the parents and everyone to believe that people with disability can do anything and everything. Like, I lost my vision. I don't have to be out of mine because I lost my vision. And then I was born in a little village, northern East Syria. Uh, it's called Talwardiyat. I was born there. I was growing up with nine girls and two boys. <clears throat> I never knew I was different from my sisters. I was probably about seven or eight. I always used to follow them. I used to follow their voices, and I thought all my sisters were the same as I am. But one day, middle of the summer, it was a beautiful day like today, we were sitting in the family room, my two sisters and I. One of them, she was about four, and the other one, she was five and a half or six. And then we were throwing the ball to each other. It was my turn to find the ball. The ball went under the bed, and I couldn't find it. I was like, 
just moving my hand around, I couldn't find it. And then my sister Mona, she just bent down and she grabbed the ball. And I was surprised. I said, oh, why couldn't I find that ball? And she stand up and she was like, she said, oh, because you can't see. And I said, what do you mean? I can't see. She said, yeah, your eyes are different. That's why you always have to take someone's arm. We don't. We run, we ply, we don't have to take someone's arm. I felt very sad that I was different from all the nine girls. I went to my mom. My mom was at her parents' place. I couldn't even talk. I just went and stand up behind her chair. She looked at me. She said, oh, what's wrong? You look sad. I said, Mom, you never told me I was different from my sisters. I've been told that I can't see, but my sisters can see. She said, who tell you that? I said, my sister. She said, yeah, that's okay. That's all right. Since then, that time, I stepped back from my sisters because I said, I don't want to interrupt them. They used to ask me, come and play with us hide and seek. But you don't have to close your eyes. One of my sisters, Nemo, she used to hold my hand and running like she's running. But once, maybe, or twice, and I said, no, I'll just stand somewhere and I'll listen to you all playing and running. And Then I, June 60s, we went to Lebanon. You can stop me any time, please, Marisa, any time. No, no, this is, this is fabulous. Keep going. Oh, when, we what year were you born? What year were you uh, born? 52. Okay, so you were born in 52. So in the 60s, you, you, what happened? Yeah. Late 60s, we went to, um, to Lebanon. We stayed there till like 75. Then we went back to Syria because of the, my parents had to come. To, uh, to Melbourne for my brother's funeral. And then we went back to Syria. I was very happy to go back to Syria, to not to see, but to feel, to smell the village I was born in, uh, to see all my aunties and cousins. And, and then we stayed there for 10 months, and we came back to Lebanon, and I, we went to Greece, my three sisters and I. Went to Greece, and then I stayed in Greece for three years, and my other two sisters came to Melbourne. Okay. I'll leave it to you. What do you want so to ask So basically, so, so what, that's really great that you were able to explain what, what's happened. So what sort of childhood did you have? And, and, and by the way, you're Assyrian, not Syrian, isn't it? That's a very important decision. Sorry, you, you're disappearing. Your voice is just... Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. Basically, you're Assyrian, not Syrian, even though you were born in Syria. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, Assyrian, Babylon. We okay. are Christian. We celebrate, like, our culture. Celebrate Christmas, Easter, and, like, an old son have to look after his parents if he had a... A single sister, he have to look after her, and yes. it's we we fast, 
for Christmas, for Easter. Yeah, we... and, and you actually talked a lot, and we won't go into that too much now because we haven't got time, but you talked a lot about that in your book and you've given an excellent account of, of the history as well, which I think people will be very interested in. Thank you. So, Marie, tell us a little bit about your... Can you tell us a little bit about your, your childhood and, and then how... So you, you weren't able to read and write when you were a little girl? No. You didn't go to school? No, I didn't. I always used to sit with my sisters when they used to come from school and hold a book in my hand and say, I wish I could read and write. But I'm being and told. So what, what about family gatherings and, and weddings uh, and parties? Were you not going much. to those? Not much. No, um, just my my aunt, my grandmother was next next door. I used to just visit my grandmother and my special friend. She's in England at the moment. I used to, she, I used to visit her, and I never went to school because I can't see. Um, I been told once like you can't you go inside your room because we're having a visitors coming. So I thought. The only people sit together is the sighted people. Blind people are not allowed to sit with the sighted people. So even I used to run in my room whenever my married sister's sister and her husband used to come and visit us. I used to go into my room, so she had to come up to me and her husband say hello because I thought that I'm not allowed to sit with the sighted people. So you I had a, why did you feel like that, Marie? What made you feel that way? Um, because I, since I was like little, I heard, you can't go near the stove, you can't see. You can't do this, you can't see. You can't, we're having a visitors, you have to go in your room, you can't see. So it did like stayed in my mind. I can't do this because I can't see. I can't mix with people. I can't go to the party because I can't see. Yeah. And yet, despite that, you've you've lived a very a very wonderful life. I did. I had a wonderful family, very caring family. And my grandmother, she was very protective, overprotective um, me because she's the one who put. I had an infection in my eyes, and she put Kirchanel in my eyes. And next day she opened them and all inside my eyes was white. So she always used to feel guilty that um, I should, shouldn't put that curtail on her eyes so I made her blind. She always over protecting me. And, um, yeah, I have a good, good life, but I had my own little corner. My world was very small. I, my world was very small because I couldn't read and write and mix with people a lot, except with my family. So I didn't have... I had a sad life because I used to go to bed with three, four times a week crying. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine you, you, you would have. And so you dedicated this book to the memory of Ben Hewitt, 1930 to 2014, who's your Braille teacher, life mentor, and friend, but before we talk about that, before we talk about your your braille lessons, can you tell us about how you came to Australia and 
and how old you were then and what happened? Um, when I came to Australia, I came with my grandmother and my sister and her husband, my sister Antoinette and her husband Peter, they did like all guarantee for me and everything. And then I came to Melbourne. When I, I was at the airport, when I heard my sister Antoinette said, this is, I'm your sister and this is my mum, I thought I was in my dream. Yeah. I came home with my mum and dad, my sister, my... I came home, I couldn't... I still was dreaming. Like everyone came to up to me, I was dreaming. When my sister-in-law, Rosa, put her little girl, um, her little daughter, in my lap, and she said, this is your niece, Elizabeth. Well, Elizabeth lost her father when she was probably about nine months. I, it's like someone wake me up. I start crying. Everyone start crying. I, I, my mum took me out to show me the garden, to tell me how is, what's outside because it was everything new to me. I felt the garden. I felt, I smelled the vegetables my dad have planned. It was in February. In, Australia, in Melbourne? In Melbourne. In marvellous yep. Melbourne. And um, I, I asked my mom, what nationality are our neighbours? She told me some, like, from different countries. And I felt sad. I said, oh, no, I can't speak the language. I can't see. I can't go out. My life will be more miserable than back home. But when I introduced, been introduced to a Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind, I think going there, going inside that building, I felt that something good's going to happen to me. I'll leave it open to you, Marissa. Absolutely. And so, correct me if I'm wrong here, Marie. So you, you went in there and Ben Hewitt taught you Braille and you would have been in your 30s then, is that right? Yes, I was 34. And, and also, we need to tell them something else very important, Marie. What do you think about this? That before you came to Australia, you actually took ages to get your visa, didn't you? And and the, and you weren't given that visa because you were blind. That's right, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I was. That's why I stayed in Greece for three years. And yes. it was very difficult for me to get my visa. And I said to my mum and dad, don't worry, I've got the owner of the house we rent. She, she said, you call me mum. I'm going to, if you're not going to go, if you can't go, I'll put you to the boarding school and I'll bring you home every weekend. I said to my mum and dad, and they said, no way, we're coming back. I said, you're not leaving whole family because of me. No, we're coming back. But when I, I used to go to her place and call, when I call and they said, your visa is ready, when I hang up, she said to me, oh, my God, I can see a big smile in your face. You always used to cry when you hang up. You always, I look at your face, you always used to be sad. 
today you you laughed. You had a big smile in your face. That's right. Tell me what happened. I love to see you going, but I will miss you. I, I know I will never see you again. Oh, you're talking about Greece now, aren't you, Marie? Uh, sorry, yes, I'm talking about yeah, you're Greece. you're talking... Because... So, so, so just... You, you're doing really brilliantly, but I just wanted... Sorry to interrupt. I just want to make sure that listeners understand what you know what's happening but you're doing very well so so you're talking about Greece but before Greece you um, were very upset weren't you when you were in Lebanon because you felt that you getting your visa was blocking escape from Lebanon yes I was very sad because I couldn't I could not come to see my parents my sisters so yeah. because in Lebanon was uh, you know um, uh, during the 70s uh, there wasn't any embassy there, so we had to go to Greece. That's why I stayed in Greece, and I've got my visa from Greece. That's right, because at that time, there was it was becoming more and more violent. The civil war, and there was you experienced you you would hear bombing and gunfire, wouldn't you? I did. I remember one Sunday, my sister-in-law she cooked spaghetti for lunch. And it was dinner time, and we'd been told to turn the light off. We wasn't allowed to put the light on, otherwise they will bomb our house. So we, we set the table and everything, and I said, I don't care. I'm going to eat my dinner. I don't need a light to have my dinner. <laughs> but no one, no one uh, had their dinner. I said, no, I'm going to have my dinner, even I light is not on. So no one had their dinner. No one could eat because no one could eat. I mean, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to be mean, but you know, we <laughs> sorry. But isn't that cool though that you you were able to have your dinner? That's you see. So there was something you could do. That's wonderful. Yes, because until the like seven o'clock in the morning, we we didn't sleep. We no, had my grandmother right. with us because my parents were here. It would and have my been really horrifying for you. Yep. And we were staying up. And I was saying, go, go and eat. No, we can't put the light on. Okay. Interesting. And so tell us about your Braille, what, what happened with the Braille and, and how you became an interpreter, Marie. Well, my sister used to take me to the day centre in Coburg. That was, then it was called... Um, Association for the Blind, and social worker there, she came and spoke to me. I couldn't speak English very little, very little. She just asked, can you read and write? And I said, no. She said, leave it to me. Then after two weeks, she took me to RVRB, and I met the Braille teacher. And I said to him, it's not too late. He said, I think it, it is too late, but... Would you like to try? I was very keen to try. Even I was 34, I want to get out of my world and go to the new world or to the to sighted people's world. And I said, yes, please, yes, please. He said, that yes, please, I can hear you very keen to learn, so I'll see you in two weeks. And I start learning Braille and English language. He used to teach me English language and Braille. 
Then after two years, I start reading my first book. I was sharing bedroom with my sister, and I was reading so loud. And she said, Marie, are you talking in your, in your sleep or your dream? I said, no, my dream came true. That was my dream to hold a book and read. I said, thanks to all Australian people and to my Braille teacher. Isn't that, that I'm really happy about that. And, and then, of course, um, you, you became an interpreter. Uh, yes, I finished Braille and I went to TAFE and I went to... Um, um, my mum was unwell. She was in the hospital and I have to interpret for her. And if with a Greek lady, a nurse asked me, Can you, why are you not become an interpreter? Because it was in my mind always, I said, I can't. She said, why? And I said, because I can't see. But you just helped me with a Greek language and a Syrian. I said, I suppose, yes. So she gave me the phone number and I called RMIT and I did the course and here I am working with refugees. I couldn't believe myself when I graduate. I'm, I'm so happy with... that you graduated. Thank you. And in fact, may I take the liberty, Marie, because we've, we've nearly, we're nearly running out of time. I want to just let listeners know, and this is something that I'm just going to quickly quote out of your book, Working with Refugee Survivors, and you say, and may I, may I read this out, Marie? Can I have your permission? Yes, of course you can. Okay, I know so what you're you going to read. Yes. So you I think say, I know when what I I'm going to read. What's that? I think I know what you're going to read. Before <laughs> I came to Melbourne, <laughs> I Well, there's a little bit here about Foundation House, and you say, when I went to Foundation House, the Victorian Foundation for Survivors of Torture, for the first time, I felt as if I had come home. That was in 2007. I'm proud to belong to the caring multicultural community at Foundation House and proud of the work that they do for refugees who have survived violence and all sorts of terrible experiences. And, of course, here's the little bit here about the vegetables, about how you were smelling the tomatoes in the garden, isn't it? Yes. In your father's garden. Marie, I'd really like to have you back at some stage. I think I might email your publisher and have you back again. I'm more than, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to come back again. Uh, it would be amazing. This has only just really scratched the surface. But, of course, we don't want to tell people too much because we want people to read your book. <laughs> so <laughs> the website for the publisher, it's Scribe Publications, isn't it? And yes. it's... I've just got to find the website here. Uh-oh. www. I can't find the website. Um... But it was published in 2020, wasn't it? Yes. And it was at Scribe Publications, and people need to, to Google that. And the address is 18 to 20 Edward Street, Brunswick, Victoria, 3056. And, yeah, just Google that. And, um, and where can we get your books, Marie? On the zone and from Scribe. Can people buy your books? We can talk to the we, they, we can talk Publishing. to the scribe about that. Yes, yeah. and of course, 
I have to say as well that uh, proudly sponsored also by Vision Australia. It's approximately 4.28. We've got about two minutes before we finish. Marie, it was so lovely having you on the show. Um, I'm wondering if you have any final comments. I thank you very much for having me. And I listen to that station also. And I just want to say I'm new Marie. The old Marie is dead. Thank God I, I came here. I wish I was born here. The new Marie, that's a good one. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Marie. And I hopefully will be in touch um, very soon to talk more about the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Tune in to Imagining Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we're making space for disabled visionaries to discuss the pandemic year that was, abolition and building a better future. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2020. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Hello. Hello. Oh. <laughs> We've just had a few technical difficulties today. Um, we're going to be welcoming Anna Brown, CEO of Equality Australia, pretty soon, but I'm just going to read out a very quick intro. Um, We're going to be speaking with Anna um, about the LBTQ conversion bill, which has passed in November, and this is actually quite world-leading, in fact, and it's been introduced in Victoria and in November... The Victorian government introduced a bill to outlaw LBTQ conversion practices and these harmful and damaging practices that attempt to change or suppress a person's gender identity or sexual orientation will be prohibited by the bill. Hello, Anna. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. How are you? Yeah, good. I, I think I actually think you and I touched base when you were working with the Human Rights Law Centre. Is that right? Yes, I used to come on and do interviews about policing and other human rights issues. And I actually started working on uh, conversion uh, so-called therapy um, or practices when I was at the Human Rights Law Centre, but I've continued that work um, at, the, at Equality Australia, which um, is a sort of newish, we're two years old, national LGBTI advocacy organisation built from the Yes campaign with support from the Human Rights Law Centre. Fantastic. So can you tell us about this bill and just explain to listeners um, why the bill had to be introduced and just give us some background on it, Anna, please? Yeah, well, um, sadly, pe- many people aren't aware that uh, conversion practices and the really damaging ideology that underpins them are actually prevalent in many faith communities across the, across Australia. So, um, you know, for those that don't know um, the ideology that underpins uh, these practices is that 
uh, people that are gay or bisexual or trans um, can and should uh, change uh, their sexuality or their gender identity. Um, and it's it's really uh, obviously profoundly damaging to be told that something uh, inherent to who you are, uh, like your sexuality or your gender, is, is you know that 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 makes you broken or or in need of a cure. And people uh, can spend you know years, sometimes decades of their lives, um, undergoing um, and recovering from these sorts of treatments, which range from you know, uh, counselling um, and AA-style sort of prayer group, um, you know, AA-style group um, work and, you know, praying and exorcisms, like a whole range of different um, manifestations depending on uh, the faith and depending on, um, you know, the particular context and the community you're growing up in. But at, at the end of the day, it's um, all of these practices are underpinned by some really damaging messages. So this bill is really important because it sends an incredibly powerful message to LGBTIQ people that they're whole and valid just as they are and uh, there's nothing about them that's wrong or in need of a cure. And it sets up some uh, quite powerful mechanisms to deal with these practices where individuals can make complaints, but also some criminal penalties in cases of injury and serious injury, and some powers to the Equal Opportunity Commission to investigate serious or systemic uh, issues. So it's a whole, it's a very carefully developed, I would say, and, and well thought through um, scheme that deals with this very complex social issue in a variety of ways. So. I'm just having a look here. You know, it's very interesting because when I had a look at this bill, I really thought back to when I was growing up and I remember that I had a friend actually that his family was trying to cure him to be straight. He was gay. Gosh. And they were trying to... Yeah. And and I was thinking about it and I thought, oh, my God, that's what was happening. Like, he was... They were trying to convert him. They were saying, oh, he has to be cured, he has to be cured to be straight and they were trying to get him these counsellors and he was very traumatised by by this process. That's what, that's the right, that's true. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely it and, um, you know, so it's often young people, um, families are often, often involved and um, it's, you know, it looks different in different faith communities uh, but uh, there's some, some really profound harm being caused. And, I mean, part of this process is about education as well because, of course, you can only... um, You can't fix a problem like this with a a law on its own. So it's it's really important to make sure that that education and awareness raising about the level of harm caused to young people but also adults... Uh, undertaking these sorts of practices is really well understood because my hope would be that uh, once, you know, people uh, involved in these sorts of practices understood what what exactly they were doing to people, then you would hope they'd stop. And you've got leading medical authorities, uh, you know, now saying these are really discredited practices, they're really harmful practices. Um, So part of 
um, the work of this legislation and the work the Victorian government's doing is getting the word out there about just how damaging uh, this stuff is. Extremely. So, so basically, just to make a bit of a clear distinction here, so affirming a person's identity, providing acceptance, support or understanding, or helping a person to explore or develop their own identity are not conversion practices. Yes, that's right. I mean, of course, um, people are... Uh, people that are same-sex attracted or gender questioning uh, are going to um, often uh, benefit from support. I mean, we all know without, you know, putting faith and putting, you know, this idea of conversion to one side that many young LGBTIQ people are struggling with their identity, with their um, their feelings at a young age, and it's something that, that many of us um, go on a journey that does require sometimes or benefit from counselling and support. So we don't, uh, we definitely don't want to undermine the ability for for LGBTIQ people to, to access counselling and support. Uh, but we, so there's a need for, um, for exceptions to make sure that, that those sorts of um, helpful practices, beneficial practices aren't inadvertently caught up in this legislation. But the, um, the act the bill sends a really, uh, you know, it it says a strong message that the intention of the bill is to affirm that a person's sexual orientation or gender identity is not broken and in need of fixing. It's not a disorder or a disease. And you might remember that it was, um, you know, only a few decades. The the reason we celebrate the 17th of May is that it's the anniversary of the year quite some decades ago now that homosexuality was removed from... Um, as a disorder from um, international health uh, standards. So there was a time where homosexuality was criminalised, where then then there was a time it was considered a disorder, even, um, you know, in a, by Western medicine rather than faith communities. But now, largely, obviously, uh, our medical profession uh, does accept and support LGBTIQ people, although we have problems still with um, accessing culturally competent medical services. Uh, But we need to make sure that um, this idea of conversion, this idea that you can fix or change or suppress someone and should suppress someone's sexual orientation or gender identities, there's no place for that in... um, anywhere in Australia, but Victoria is making it clear there's, there's no place for it in Victoria. Absolutely. And that's very progressive, isn't it? So I'm quite shocked. Yeah, well, I mean, most people think it's a bit of a no-brainer, and you would hope so. Um, oh. And certainly Australia is doing a lot of good in this area. There's been developments in Queensland and the ACT uh, and now Victoria. So... There's lots of states and territories moving on on this issue, but but of course it's not the only issue that impacts on LGBTIQ people. And the one one really um, striking example of another harmful practice is that of uh, forced surgeries and medical treatment on intersex children, so children born with um, you know physical sex characteristics that are not stereotypically male or female. And our understanding is that uh, these children are sometimes operated on, obviously without their consent because it's at a very young age, um, when when this treatment isn't necess- 
isn't medically necessary, but it's considered, uh, you know, for so, so-called psychosocial reasons. Um, so we really need to make sure that in other areas as well that we're eradicating any harmful practice that's, I guess, underpinned by uh, cultures that don't accept and celebrate um, different sexes, sexualities, genders um, that exist as part of the natural diversity of uh, human life and existence. And Anna, in terms of legality, uh, part of the bill is really in regards to the Human Rights Commission, as you said earlier, they have the powers to investigate and receive complaints regarding conversion practices. So how would that work, for example? I mean, can we think of a, a brief case example where that would where we explain that to listeners? Yeah, sure. So um, I think what might happen, you know, one example of what might happen is that uh, perhaps a family in a particular faith community um, finds out that their child is being referred to um, a religious leader for, you know, pastoral care or spiritual healing um, and their, their child might come back to them and say, well, I went into this counselling or this this um, this one-on-one meeting with a, with a religious leader and I was, they started asking me questions about... Um, my sexuality and how I could, you know, get back onto God's path and and promise that they could heal me and, you know, that that family might say, well, I think this needs to be reported and um, then the commission might, might, you know, if it considers that issue serious, that there's a risk of harm to other young people in that faith community that they will commence an investigation into that particular church and or religious leader and then um, what can what could happen is that uh, they could um, you know interview people in that community interview the religious leader the people involved other people that may have had experiences and then come to an agreement about what should happen next like and that's they've talked about well, in the legislation speaks of enforceable undertakings or compliance notices, but they're used in exam- in other indus- industries or sectors like health and safety. So um, the church involved may agree to an action plan on how or can make commitments to um, not not undertake those sorts of practices again. Might issue an apology. It might do a bunch of different things. It's it's sort of up to the commission to work with. Uh, the organisation about how it can best, um, you know, ensure that those practices don't occur in the future if they're substantiated, of course, and how they can um, make amends uh, for what's taken place. So basically that would include also making orders, preventing conversion practices which are shown to be harmful from occurring and possibly providing compensation to survivors who have been harmed? Yeah, well, I think it's a bit of an open book, the enforceable undertaking. There's nothing in the bill that uh, limits what could be in there. So, I mean, I think that's something worth asking the commission. I hope, I hope, in the, I hope there's a potential for compensation because I, uh, my understanding from speaking to survivors is that they do suffer real and lasting harm, and people are 
in recovery for for a very long time and need to undertake significant um, therapy uh, to get over their trauma if they ever do. And there's sadly examples of uh, lives lost uh, through suicide because of these sorts of practices. So the harm is very real and not only do we need to make sure it's prevented but that survivors are supported and that um, they are that there is some some recognition that they are deserving of of compensation and and reparations for for what's been done to them. And in fact, you do say in the media release um, compiled by Equality Australia, you mentioned that the law must be met with redress and support for current survivors. And you've made a really important point here, Anna, in, 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 about investment in programs to build awareness of the harm caused by conversion therapy so that we can finally end these damaging practices for good. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's, my hope would be the Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission can play uh, a really important role, as they do in other areas of human rights, um, around community education and... Um, working with different faith communities uh, to make sure their the pastoral care is uh, um, undertaken in a way that respects and affirms the dignity of LGBTQ people, and that those communities are safe safe places for for young people, but also obviously people of any age that are gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans. And just in terms of um, definition, because I think this is terribly important because a lot of people don't understand what LGBTQ means, Anna. Can you actually yeah. tell listeners what that means? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, people talk about different versions of the acronym, but generally LGBTIQ is something that we use. But in this case, and let's say, so lesbians and gay men are... A, people that are generally attracted to the same sex or gender, rather. Uh, bisexual people are attracted to one or more genders and transgender people are talking about a different thing, which is gender identity, and they're people that identify as a gender that differs from the sex they were assigned at birth. So um, they can be transitioning from or transition from male to female or identifies as a trans man or a trans woman or, in some cases, non-binary or... Um, neither or both male or female or agendered or some of those terms. And um, I mentioned intersex young people before. Now, intersex people aren't included in these reforms because uh, there wasn't... My understanding is there there isn't significant evidence or there's not that intersex uh, people are subjected to conversion, so-called conversion therapy in these faith and other settings. But like I said, there's other other harmful practices that intersex uh, young young people and uh, particularly infants endure that that need really careful scrutiny and and absolutely urgent uh, systemic change. But it's sort of conceptually a different issue. And what what does Equality Australia see as moving forward with this legislation? in regards to also the, the two-year review here? Uh, well, it's, I think it's really important to see... That I think the two-year review is an important feature of the reform because it allows some time to see whether um, the civil scheme and the criminal offences 
are effective in um, capturing the conduct that's occurring out there, uh, whether the the thresholds are set um, relevantly, whether the consent-based facilitation that's offered. So when a when a complainant comes forward and can facilitate their case uh, with a with a perpetrator of conversion practices, whether or change or suppression practices, I should say. There's lots of words being used here. Whether they are. Uh, whether that's effective, whether people do come forward, uh, whether more work needs to be done, whether the consent requirement is um, means that no one ends up agreeing, you know, those sorts of questions. I think there'll, there'll be a lot of work to be done in the implementation phase. Uh, I should say the bill does do other things as well as address conversion practices. They're, speaking of intersex people, there's there's new protections for intersex people from discrimination. So while the government's amending the um, bringing in this new reform, they're also um, amending some definitions in our Equal Opportunity Act to better protect trans and gender diverse people, including non-binary people for the first time, uh, and also um, strengthen and and more accurately and appropriately protect intersex people from discrimination. So there's a bunch of good things in this bill. It is to be hoped that it becomes part of the, um, you know, the Equal Opportunity Commission? Because it hasn't yet, has it? Uh, what hasn't? Sorry? Like, what I mean is, with, with this bill, Anna, does, yep. is that part of the Equal Opportunity Commission yet? Like, the law there, or not? Yeah, it will be after the bill passes and becomes oh, an it act. Will. Then, okay. yeah, the Equal Opportunity Act will be amended to include... Some of the provisions in the bill, and when's that? And, oh, it it will take some time. So I think it, there's a fairly long commencement date. Uh, from memory, it's it, the law. If it's passed, won't come into effect until early next year because I think the government thinks there'll be a fair bit of work to do getting ready for the law coming into place. I mean, but before we get to any of that, we need to make sure it passes and. As you know, the numbers in the parliament in Victoria are not, you know, the government doesn't have a majority in both houses. So it's really vital that the community gets behind this bill, that it supports LGBTIQ people and, and those increased protections for trans, gender diverse and intersex people in the in discrimination law and uh, making sure these uh, these mechanisms to deal with conversion practices are introduced for the first time. So. I'd encourage everyone, just to put in a plug, um, to hop online if they if they have a moment. Where um, we're asking everyone to email their MP and make sure that they know that the community supports these reforms. We've got some tips on how you can do that and information about the bill online. Which I'm happy to send to you, Marissa, if that helps, and you can um, uh, promote awesome. that to your listeners as well. Yeah, thanks so much. So basically the bill's been introduced, but it hasn't been passed as yet. Yeah, exactly right. Now, that's, that's, good, that's good, to, good to say. Look, I, I saw that actually. I, I didn't realise I was on the list to Equality Australia, and I actually was having a look at the email, and I, I rang up the media officer at Equality Australia. I just couldn't believe it, Anna. And I saw this bill, and I thought, this happened to this friend of mine. Like, he used to cry every day, Anna. He used to cry oh, every so day. Sad. He was, like, we were teenagers and he was about 17. 
And he used to ring me up and he'd say, oh, my, my parents want to cure me. And I was, I actually, I said, what? Yeah, yeah. He said, they, they want to cure me to be straight. And they wanted to send him to the best religious counsellor in Melbourne. And, and, but I thought, does that still happen? It still happens yeah, it now. It does. Yeah. Well. It absolutely does. Let's hope that, um, you know, that, that there can be education and that this bill does pass. And certainly, Anna, if you email me that, those resources, I'd be very happy to promote that further on our show. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Marissa. I can imagine what that would happen in prison, Anna. Oh, yeah, horrific. In prisons, it would be absolutely horrific, wouldn't it? Well, I'd hope that I'd hope that it wouldn't happen in prison, given they're controlled by the state. Oh, well, you never know, Anna. You just never know these things. Yeah, I can. I can actually. Is it helpful if I read out the URL um, for the? Email your MP. Yes, please. Uh, information. Yep. So it's just um, equalityaustralia.org.au forward slash end conversion vic vic. That is forward slash. Anna, thanks so much for coming onto the program, and I'm sure we'll hear from you again. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Have thanks a good day. Thanks, care. Marissa. Bye bye. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367. 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. It's approximately 4.54 and we've got about three minutes left before I'm out of here. I um, wanted to thank Marie Yunan and also Anna Brown from Equality Australia for coming onto the show. And we'll be promoting those issues um, as time goes on. So, and just don't forget that the 3rd of December is International Disability Day and that there'll be coverage um, looking, at, looking at that. And the theme this year, I believe, is abolition. So um, it's goodbye from Marissa. We're going to be going out with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella, by the Rumpy Band. Tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. And we've got Beyond Zero up next. And a special cheerio to Peter and Rob. Stay safe, everybody, and take care of each other. I
3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Tune in to Imagining Disability Justice. 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we're making space for disabled visionaries to discuss the pandemic year that was, abolition and building a better future. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2020. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.